Welcome back, Gavin Riley, with you on the record until one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk five three one zero six for your texts. Uh, right now, we all should be watching the Olympics, and I do mean that literally right now because Tokyo is what ten or eleven hours ahead of us, so we really should be getting to the climax end uh, of the day around now. Uh, alas, not to be. Um, Ireland's Olympic history is a curious story, though, because there are victories under Irish flags, victories under colonial flags, there are victories against colonial flags, there are successful diaspora hammer throwers, and there are. Even even a couple of medals in art and poetry. But much like the history of cycling and indeed soccer on this island, there's been plenty of wrangling about just who represents Ireland and a surprising amount of joy for an Irish sporting story about which Donald Fallon is here to tell us more. Donald, good afternoon. How are you? Good to be here. You're really lamenting not being able to watch the Olympics right now. Yeah, I suppose we're, we're, we're living on sporting nostalgia uh, with the passing of Jack Charlton and other things mm. in, in, in recent weeks. But definitely, I mean, in the absence of the of the Olympics, we, we may as well go back uh, in time to Irish former glories. If it's good enough for everyone else, it's <laughs> it's good enough for us. Uh, talk to me first of all about Ireland's very first uh, athletic Olympic medal. And I say athletic because that's a distinction we'll come back yes, to in future. Um, it's a kind of a disputed fact of history. Occasionally the name Dr. Pat O'Callaghan, you know, comes up in a, in a sporting table quiz. You know, if you hang around places like the back page long enough. And, you know, he was at the, the 1928 Olympic Games in Amsterdam the first athlete from Ireland to win an Irish Olympic medal under an Irish flag representing Ireland. He was a really remarkable figure, actually paid his own fare to the Games. And, you know, this week, which so much talk about expenses and other things, I find mm. that remarkable that this athlete paid his own way wow. to the Olympics. But the time wasn't the, any further away than Amsterdam. By the time of the following Olympics in 32, actually, we used Churchgate collections to get the athletes abroad. So wow. it's a curious aspect of the story, how we got people there. But, you know, men would argue that they had won medals for Ireland in the Olympics before Pat O'Callaghan. Mm. They just technically hadn't won them. Uh, for Ireland, you know, arguably the golden age of Irish sporting prowess predates the Irish state. I'm always amazed by this. The 1908 Olympic Games in London, Irish-born athletes win more than 30 medals. Now, the reason we win so many medals is they included a tug-of-war team. So they all got oh, a medal okay. and, <laughs> and athletic kind of hammer hammer throwers. But, you know, you've got some great characters if you go back into the prehistory. Edward Barrett, Ballyduff, County Kerry man, won an Olympic gold medal that year and was previously part of the London team that won the All-Ireland Hurling final. We, so we've talked about it in this lot before. That's yeah, the yeah. incredible distinction, the remarkable and unique distinction of both an Olympic gold medal and an All-Ireland hurling medal. Did you say that there was a team of tug-of-war athletes? <laughs> yeah. if, if ever there was a sport that really that would just sort of cater to the Irish psyche of just being stubbornness and just a bit <laughs> yeah. of brawn, we should absolutely bring, bring back tug-of-war as an Olympic sport. Um, before um, Pat O'Callaghan and indeed before anyone else as well, there's a famous stunt uh, in 1906, uh, which was like the 10th anniversary of the modern Olympics, which did grab some international I, headlines. I think it's a movie ma- waiting to be made the most remarkable Irish Olympic victory, Peter O'Connor, 1906. Yeah, and he takes silver in the long jump uh, and he took grave offence, you know, when the, the, the Union flag went up. So this is 10 years before the rising, remember. Peter mm. O'Connor shimmies up the flagpole and replaces the Union flag with a green flag emblazoned with a gold harp and the words, Erin Gabra, Ireland forever, which he'd brought uh, himself. Well, you know, his fellow Irish athlete, Con he kept guard at the base of the pole so the, you know, the Olympic bureaucrats couldn't get up there mm. uh, and stop him. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that gives British sporting authorities considerable headaches. Um, Ireland is a country that produces its fair share of brilliant athletes but the question was who would they want to represent? Was there always a big question in Irish sporting history and bearing in mind this is a time of the, the formation of the GAA and this kind of real sporting revolution as well was everyone behind the idea of the Olympics being something that we should actually be bothered about? You see ultimately what are the Olympics and I'm one, of course it's a sporting event but it's also very much an internationalist event and it, it's wrapped up in the language of world unity mm. and a great biographer of Michael Cusack founder of the GAA said that you know his idea 
idealism was in tune with the founders of the modern Olympics who believed in the importance of physical fitness, amateurism, fair play and the character building qualities of sporting competition. But, you know, in the eyes of some, the Gaelic Gales or the Irish Irelanders as they call themselves, you know, the primary concern of sporting bodies at home should be sport at home. Mm. And they regarded this as a kind of interesting international sideshow uh, and distraction. So it was all well and good kind of pursuing these Corinthian values of sport or whatever but they didn't really matter about the global stage because sport at home had a kind of a political tinge exactly. that didn't and that, that was the priority of priorities. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Pat O'Callaghan was Ireland's first athletic Olympic medal and that's an important distinction because there were medals before I, his I, I've that were seen this happen at a sporting table quiz where someone stands up and says no, 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 no. Our first Olympic medals technically speaking as an independent nation were actually won in a really peculiar way. Uh, the poet Oliver St. John Gogarty took a medal for poetry, a bronze. And Jack B. Yates, we touched on this once before, yeah. won a silver medal. Uh, and they both won them at the Parisian Night Games in, uh, in 1924. So this was the first Olympics Ireland competed in, in, in any sense in 24. And I always find it funny because, you know, Gogarty he was a brilliant swimmer. He was a great athlete. He was actually a soccer player with Bohemians for a period. And he probably laughed at the idea that someone who was, you know, so good at sport and so proud of his, of his fitness wins a medal at the Olympics for poetry. Of all <laughs> But, you know, Irish athletes, we sent 40 of them to the games in, in, in Paris, came back empty-handed. So the media had a field day with this. It was like a kind of stereotypical thing, you know, about the Irish. that they go off to the Olympics, they come back with two medals uh, for literature and, and, for, and for painting. But I think the Parisian Games are important as a, a nation-building exercise. You know, we're two years on the world stage. We send our own athletes c- to compete as Irishmen mm. in Irish colours. And yeah. that in itself was a victory. And it doesn't matter whether they necessarily come back draped with medals for their athletic pursuits, just the fact that they were even well, on the stage. I think Ireland's the only country we get. We get a homecoming parade anyway, just for going, you know. That's, that's kind of how, how <laughs> no, we do sports. There, I've seen some cynical takes about uh, Italian 90 and USA 94 talking about homecoming <laughs> parades. I think there's, there's maybe a little bit more to it than that. Um, some <laughs> listeners may remember that back around the turn of the century, uh, Gay Mitchell, uh, the one-time minister, then MEP, and then uh, presidential candidate, he suggested that we should have bid for the Olympics around then because he said, why wouldn't Dublin stand on its own feet? But you, you've done some a little bit of research here and it, that wasn't even the first time it was mentioned. I was amazed by this that you know in in 36 so literally 12 years into our Olympic story uh, somewhat overconfident Dublin bids for the 1936 Olympic Games along with other cities Buenos Aires Budapest went for it as well and you know I think it was the confidence of the time that the Eucharistic Congress had happened in, in 1932 you had people like Sean Lamas in government talking about this new confident Irish state mm. and I think we felt that we demonstrated we can put on an enormous gathering with thousands of visitors uh, but you know in the end that Olympics, the 36 Olympics, the judges had a kind of simple two-way question between Barcelona, then part of the Spanish Republic, and Berlin, which was the kind of capital of, of, of Nazi Germany, of course. Mm. And that is probably the most controversial Olympics in 20th century uh, yeah, history. for it, several it, reasons. It, it's yeah. probably most remembered uh, for for Jesse Owens winning those medals, which yeah. was remarkable. And and, and the, the opening ceremony was just weird. Thomas Wolfe, the American novelist, was there. He said it was almost a religious event. The crowd screaming, swaying in unison and begging for Hitler. There was something scary about it, the cult of personality. It's remarkable to think then that uh, had the Olympic Committee taken a slightly different approach to it, that what became this crowning achievement where Nazi Germany was put on this world stage and they were able to portray themselves in some instances literally as the master race, that all could have been avoided had the 
the Olympics just been taking place in Jones. Had they run around the Phoenix Park instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> different history of the world could have been. So how did Ireland then feel about the fact that uh, the Olympics took place in what was Nazi Germany? You see, in I, I, I've heard that in a very historical sense. People say, "Oh, fair play to us. We didn't go over to the to the, the Olympics in Nazi Germany." So we did. We some didn't great at political all, stand, but it was nothing to do with politics. I mean, Nazi Germany played a soccer game in Dalyman Park in, the, in in that very same year. The reason we didn't go to Germany wasn't that we didn't recognise Nazi Germany. It was actually to do with our own politics. The, the National Athletic and Cycling Association, the NACA, had been suspended by the Olympics because they refused to recognise the, the small issue of partition and basically claimed that they recognised that they represented the island uh, in its entirety. Okay. So, you know, it was, it was the, the Irish question. It's always the Irish question on the border yeah. that kept us out of the Olympics rather than, you know, this, this great stand against Nazi Germany. But we have been spared the historic newsreels of Irish athletes mm. parading past Hitler, which other nations have to endure. Although, isn't there, there's Pathé footage of the same, the, the soccer match that you mentioned of Ireland playing Nazi Germany at Dalyman Park and the lads walking by with all of the salutes and everything. And a remarkable match programme, very rare match programme. Of, it comes up in whites now and then of the, the tricolour and the and the, the swastika side by side. Um, and you mentioned um, cycling and things get pretty ugly and there are two Olympic Games which are disturbed by Irish protesters along those lines. Quite sad, actually. like The real division in Irish cycling for a long, long time. 56, the Summer Olympics in, in Melbourne. Three Irish cyclists attempt to compete for Ireland in the team road race. They're members of what's called the National Cycling Association, which is this very kind of Republican. This sounds very unusual. It's a Republican cycling body. Mm. And all our claims to represent cycle the, the, Queen's the, the entire island of Ireland. Actually, some people, uh, members of it were, were involved in no small way in blowing up Nelson's Pillar, which probably says everything you need to know about this cycling body. But they're, they're kind of, you know, they're not internationally recognised. They're the mavericks, if you will, of, of, of Irish cycling. Uh, and they're going to gay crash the race. And they claim if they can't get gay crash the race, they're going to extinguish the Olympic flame in protest. Mm. Thankfully, they don't manage to do that. Then the 72 Olympics in Munich, things get really heated when members of that body actually get into the race. You know, they, they compete in it unofficially and there's bemusement among international cyclists. Who are these lads? I mean, yeah. there's, there's two Ireland. So there's now. an official Irish team and then there's this kind of continuity, Co- continuity Irish, Irish team. team. And it's just like the FAI versus the IFA debacle that goes on and on mm. uh, in, in soccer. So these kind of questions at home, you know, does Irish sporting claims, do they stop at Newry or do they go beyond it? It can often become kind of embarrassing on, on the world stage. Yes, yeah, so clearly a time before it was sort of agreed that people who came from Newry and North were able to choose which one of the two jurisdictions they wanted to represent. Passport uh, diplomacy that we have today. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you mentioned the 1956 Summer Olympics there where the, the cyclists got in bother for trying to compete for Ireland. There are, of course, other happier memories from oh, those the, games as well. The memory of memories for the 56 Olympics has to be Ron, uh, Ron Delaney. Uh, then a college student in, in America, he brilliantly says that he first saw his victory in the Olympics himself when he went back to America. He's sitting in a cinema and it was on a newsreel and it was the first time he saw the victory. Wow. He defeated John Landy the 56 Olympics in, in Melbourne and the men's one, uh, 1500 metres Landy was the firm favourite I mean so this was kind of like you know your classic underdog story Arkle versus Milhouse kind of stuff but it was the highlight of a tournament that, that produced five Irish medals so mm. I mean for many people 56 it's not the dispute of you know Republican cyclism that the cycles that they remember it's it's the incredible success of Ron Delaney um, Delaney has a street named after him there are other Olympian heroes including uh, Sonny O'Sullivan down south who have statues after them yeah I mean I was just thinking to, to wrap this up you know what is the legacy of, of Irish success in, in the Olympics Katie Taylor is our last gold medal mm. uh, 2012 in London incredibly but you know there have been significant medal victories in, in bronze and silver as well and it's a really beautiful monument in, in Nina Tipperary that honours some of our winners Johnny Hayes Matt McGrath and Bob Tis all with Nina connections, mm. all won medals. 1908, 1918, 1932 
respectively. But it's a really, really beautiful monument. And I think, in the case of Matt McGrath, anyway, it's definitely the only statue of a hammer thrower on the island <laughs> yeah. uh, of Ireland. But it was unveiled by by Ronnie Delaney. So that beautiful kind of continuity. And if listeners haven't seen it, actually, it's worth a trip to Nina. I think it's the most impressive sporting monument on the island of Ireland. Excellent stuff. Uh, going forward, of course, uh, all is up in the <sighs> air. The future is unwritten, as as they say. I mean, Tokyo 2020, will it still be called Tokyo 2020? Some people say it will. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the t-shirts are printed, so it'll be Tokyo Mm. 2020 in 21. The same as Euro 2020 is still Euro 2020, even though it's taking place. It it is almost certainly a licensing thing. Exactly. It would take too much to draw. Look, you've paid the lads to do the branding, so that's it. But, you know, some people say with total confidence that it will happen. And I think what we've learned in this country and internationally in recent times is you say nothing with total confidence because, you know, we don't know what's six weeks ahead, never mind six months ahead. But it's interesting to me. I mean, thinking about the Olympics going forward in Ireland, when I was researching this, in American sporting history, so many of their medals in the early 20th century were won by the Irish diaspora, you know, Mm. the first and second generation uh, in the United States. And I wonder going forward, as Ireland becomes uh, more diverse and there's different sporting traditions making their their mark here, will we start to see us picking up more medals uh, as a result? So we we live in hope of that. Uh, Fascinating stuff. We all, of course, live in hope that we will get to see Tokyo 2020 plus one uh, at some point (laughs) on on the Time Shift channels uh, nine hours from now in about a year's time. Uh, Donald, as ever, thank you very much for that. Donald Fallon is a historian. He is the author of the Come Here To Me books and he's a presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast. (laughs) 